Blog Talk Radio. to the Bottom Line Show Live. I'm your show host and producer, Dame Lillian Walker. And today with us we have Cheryl Snap Connor. Well, Cheryl Snap Connor is the founder and CEO of Snap Connor PR, and she's also the creator of Content University. She's a popular speaker, author, and national columnist on business communication and PR. Now, in addition to heading her PR agency from Salt Lake City, Cheryl writes for Forbes Magazine, PC Magazine, Inc., and the Huffington Post, and she is also a guest contributor for the Wall Street Journal. She's the author of Beyond PR, Communicate Like a Champ in the Digital Age. Clearpoint Strategies has named her one of the world's top 20 business thought leaders to follow. Now... Cheryl, welcome to the Bottom Line Show Live. Thank you <laughs> Thank for being you. with us today, Cheryl. It's such Thanks an honor so and a pleasure to have you on the show. We've been wanting to have you on for some time, and uh, I know that I had the good fortune and pleasure to meet you. Originally, I think it was at CEO Space, and since then we've run into each other at everything from uh, the Digital Footprint event to Secret Knock to all sorts of other places. <laughs> All kinds of places. We run in good circles. We sure do. We sure do. Well, before we dive in deep into the heart of this matter of about being a champion online influencer and your secrets to success, tell us a little bit first about you know where you grew up and how you got to, to this point of being a, a thought leader and so involved with PR. Well, a lot of lucky accidents. They say there are no coincidences, and there probably aren't. But I've been really fortunate, and I've been somebody who tends to dive in and make things happen. So I guess that's worked to my advantage. But I grew up in a very small town, Eagle, Idaho. If you've ever seen Napoleon Dynamite, it was just like that. And, in fact, of my high school graduating class, very few of the girls were permitted to finish college. And even on a scholarship, I felt like I had to scramble, but that was something you just couldn't afford to waste on a girl and was very fortunate, but I majored in home economics, thought I would be a stay-at-home power mom, and the minor in English saved my bacon because communications has become my real career and my love. Got into the tech industry by fortunate accident yet again because of all industries, particularly when I got in, because I I am a little, I've earned every gray hair, but um, they were dying for communicators. The only people in tech were the technicians, and they couldn't speak normal English. So that was a good opportunity to shine. So those lucky accidents led me where I am. Well, and have you always loved technology? Um, not exactly. I've learned to love it, but I, I loved communications. 
and I loved seeing people accomplish great things. And, and it was a little intuitive to me from the very beginning. I worked for Novell, local area networking, and um, it hadn't been thought of at the time that I was hired and invited to join. So instead of just press releases and hype and promotion, I really felt strongly we need to tell the stories about how people are using this. Um, what were their alternatives? Who did they have to convince? You know, how long did it take to implement? And if they did it again, what would they do better next time? The kind of things they'd tell their best friends, not the kind of things you see in a testimonial article or a promotion. And that was the beginnings of thought leadership. So I guess before the term was framed, I kind of caught on and felt it was important. The universe was um, giving you clues and you were following that thread. Yes, I think so. Would you say that that uh, working with Novell was your first big break? It was a huge break. In fact, I really, um, it was both a blessing and a curse. I was there not even quite three years, but it felt like several decades. But when you're given an opportunity like that, a company that went through four acquisitions, an IPO, the market leader, oh my gosh. it's um, something you don't take lightly. And if IBM called in the middle of the night, I was there, you know, even with my three little boys. You just don't say no. So I was owned by it, and that was an all-immersive. I, I would spend overnight, all-nighters, trying to struggle to complete a single article, just staring at a blank screen trying to think of a good headline. Now, you know, it's intuitive. You learn these skills, but it was, it was the biggest break I could have asked for. Wow, that's incredible. So um, did you know that when you signed up to work with Novell this way that you were going to be, sounds like you were like a doctor. You were their like on-call resident, it sounds like. I had no idea, but I was desperate. My then-husband had amassed a number of student loans, and the only way for us to get past those and get into a house was for me to do something. So that was it, and I was fortunate. And he was in tech, so that was really my introduction and my ability to get there. But um, interestingly, when I tearfully submitted my resignation because I just couldn't do it with my young boys at home anymore, mm-hmm. I stepped out and my income tripled overnight. Tripled. I'd been wow. constrained by the corporate rules that you could only progress so far so fast. But when I went out onto the open market, I was in high demand. That's incredible. So, so tell us, take us back to that journey, and that, it must have been quite an emotional roller coaster, because you hear your tax, you're wearing three hats at once. You know, you're a wife, you're a mom of these three kids, and you're this businesswoman who is on call 24/7, uh, trying to, you know, keep all these plates spinning <laughs> at the same time. And it must have been really difficult to take that leap of faith and say, you know what? Not only can I not do this anymore, but I'm not going to do this anymore, not really um, knowing that you'd be able to replace your income, you know, immediately and then to have it triple. Wow. I I had to do it. It was really down. And, and yes, you've named a few conflicting priorities there. So wasn't I a, a royal mess? But um, it was one night when I, I had a boss for a while who wasn't a very good one, very hierarchical, and I think fairly threatened that thanks to my writing ability, I was the one person allowed to write collaboratively with all three of the top three executives in the company. That was access that even he didn't have, so I'm sure that was a little bit threatening. 
But uh, oh, we were preparing yeah. for an afraid. analyst event in New York. Yeah, and, and we prepared the slides, and this will show my age. Back then they were slides. You had to produce them and put them in a tray, and you'd learn the tricks like running the marker over the tops of the tray spills, you know, which end was up when you put them back in the tray. Well, I'd submitted my presentation on a Wednesday, and um, into his in-basket it went, and he refused to look at it until 5 p.m. Friday evening. You know, kind of, I think, trying to teach me a little bit of a lesson. Then we walk into the conference room, and he says, okay, I'm putting my finger on the bullet. Advance to the next slide. Where does it land? Um, just nitpicked those slides to pieces, handed me the tray, said, I don't care what you do, but you better be in New York with these redone by Monday morning. So there I am at midnight in this corporate mm-hmm. office with three little boys around my ankles because you can't get a babysitter at that hour. You know, begging someone else from another department because every slide maker in a 100-mile radius had also been sealed up with similar things. And I thought, I can't do this. But I was naive enough to think, you don't complain. That's just the death knell. You, you don't do that and your career's over. So I made alternate plans, meekly went in to submit my resignation, only to find out that vice president was on his way out and they had thoughts of giving me his role. Had I only known, but I was burned out by then. I was far better off on my own. But sometimes it's a matter of perspective. The things you didn't know at the time could have made such a big, big difference. So I don't think anyone should sell themselves short. I learned such lessons, though. You know, those first months on my own, there I was just in an unfurnished dining room with my children running laps around the circle because there weren't doors on the dining room. And um, Mm -hmm. I was contracting back to Novell and to their magazine, Land Times. Well, the CFO realized this is maybe a message we don't want other people to figure out that you could leave and contract back the same services to the same company and make a lot more money. So he sat on my invoices for about three months. Thankfully, I had one other job going out the gate, and that was for a magazine called PC Today out of Lincoln, Nebraska. I was doing a project for them every month because that was all the money I got for the first three months, even though I was booking all of this. So I went Mm -hmm. back in, and the senior vice president I had reported to was a great friend and mentor to me, said, okay, we didn't have this conversation, but just walk into that department and say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I think I may have to get an attorney. So I did that and walked back out with all of my checks, all paid up, and never had the issue again. And that CFO actually apologized to me in later years. So, but, you know, no hard feelings. I learned a valuable lesson early that you don't dare, if you are your own boss, you don't dare rely on one or two clients for the majority of your income or, or you're taking a risk. I was glad to know that. Wow. So it taught you early on to diversify and spread your risk, so to speak, uh, and exposure and, uh, over I think I, you, know, you didn't you don't know what you don't know. So so those yeah, were lessons true. too that I had had this great notoriety for being the PR director who'd headed Novell, but then I went out and all these people who were seeking me out and just so anxious to hire me were startup companies. Completely different mode of PR. That was kind of a lesson too that you you don't when you're a startup company, you don't go to the Helmsley Palace and say, Here's your appointment at two o'clock, be there or try to run a press conference, except, you know, we, we were clever. We did some things like sponsor the lunch the first day of a trade show kind of thing because people have to sit down and get something to eat anyway. Why not just grab that window? 
but um, captive audience. Captive audience, but we needed to go door to door or office to office and see these reporters individually. And I kind of thought I'd invented that, but that became what a lot of people later figured out was press tours. And we did a lot of those because we just couldn't rely on reporters to get to any central location and spend the time when they were there to visit with us. Wow, so you figured out quickly how to get garner their attention. I did. So that was fortunate. I, I've had a lot of learning lessons over the years, and, and thankfully it served me well. Yeah, and it's interesting, the irony, because here you are in communications, and here you're telling these stories, you know, in order to bridge, you know, the techies with the customer and, and so forth. And then it was communication that really saved you when, when you heard and listened that, you know, maybe you should say, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, and you're not really complaining, but you are, you're, you're communicating that something is not quite right. And, you know, obviously uh, they have the ability to do something about it. And if they don't do something about it, you just had to communicate. If you don't do something about it, I'm just going to have to find, you know, myself an attorney that will take care of this. And, and then they realize, oh, my goodness, you know, you don't need to do that. Let's go ahead. And so it's like it really empowered you. The communication, which is how you were making a living, but you had to take that up another notch. But I had to learn a lot of those things the hard way, and I'd, I'd love to do anything in my power to help others get there more easily than I did. Mm-hmm. It's not necessary to trip in every single pothole. No, no, no. And it's, it's nice if you can learn from other people having tripped in those potholes, and now you can avoid them, and it saves, you know, your learning curve is a lot shorter and faster. Exactly. So what, what is thought leadership and why is it so important to entrepreneurs? Uh, thought leadership is a little bit of a buzzword, but really it is the industry term for value-add kind of content that's not promotional, that's not manipulative, just information that guides people's thinking, takes them to a better state of affairs, So if you educate people on something or open a new line of thinking that they respond to, that's thought leadership. You can publish it. And, yes, it does fall into the theme of whatever your product or service is, but in a non-promotional way. So it's um, not hard selling. We used to call them, it's not hard selling. I used to call the stories that we did case studies or use cases, but they were thought leadership, just opening people's eyes to a different way of accomplishing something they took for granted. They didn't know they had a problem because they didn't know there was any other way to proceed. And, and thought leadership wow. as well is a two-way street that when people can engage, they can be part of the discussion. That's a critical aspect beyond just a one-way recipient of information. Mm-hmm. Well, and that makes so much sense because that's what, what the consumer and customers out in the marketplace, that's really what they're looking for is valuable information that's reliable, that's trustworthy, so that they can become educated and empowered so that now they have the foundation on which where they can make an educated decision and take a step forward in that direction that they want to go. And and they are part of it as well. When they respond, when there's a dialogue going, so, so that's an important aspect. It's important that nobody manipulate or trip. You know, a lot of the email marketing is meant to look like a personal communication or worthwhile communication, and really it's a thinly veiled ad. So the best levels of thought leadership are always very evident. They are exactly what they say that they are or look like they are. 
And then that is how you engender trust in any kind of an audience. So um, people want to engage with you. They gain an awareness. Maybe they'll respond now, maybe 11 times from now. Interestingly, I've, I've talked to other people who publish who've said, I did a lot of publishing. I know how many likes and shares I get, and that's kind of a metric I look at. Then somebody phoned me up and said, I am hiring you, and I'm hiring your organization. They had never commented. They had never liked, but they had been following this individual's articles for maybe three, five articles, and then realized they liked his tone. They liked his skill. They'd made a case, and he'd made a sale without ever knowing he had a customer who was observing him. Watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the likes and the shares are not necessarily an accurate indicator of who's really watching you and who's actually engaged and whose attention you've caught is what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly. That's correct. Yes, and honestly, so many people say, well, you're a writer for Forbes, so help a fellow out. Can you just hook me up? What does it cost for you to help me make that connection? I just need that credibility next to my name. They've got it all wrong. Mm. And what we really work to educate people on is if you are publishing information, you're probably better off to publish it on LinkedIn or on Medium where you're more free to do what you want. Of course, that means if you do it poorly, people are just going to walk away. But you could have a full paragraph at the end, put it in italics so it's clear it's not part of your article that talks about your value proposition and tells the other ways to connect with you when you're writing for a major magazine the amount of space they give you is about the size of a tweet. You really are working in, <laughs> in a lot of sense. It's like an unpaid reporter. And if you're a good Fight one, it will net you substantial rewards. But that's a bigger job than people realize. And I also tell them, let's work at making you a better writer. That will make you a more successful executive or entrepreneur. And if you're a rock star, you won't need our help or our connection to get into the magazine if you still want to do so. But that's the way to do it. It's not just a connection or a black book introduction kind of a thing. So do you think uh, the the small business, medium business owner, the entrepreneur, whether they're an author, speaker, or writer, someone who's an expert in their industry, do you think it would behoove them to, to aspire to try to become a writer, not just in some of their trade magazines and uh, publications, but also in the larger publications like Forbes, Inc., Wall Street Journal, et cetera, so that they can... Um, if, if they'd like to, but if they just aspire to write, do it in medium, do it in... In fact, I have seen some people, the investor Mark Suster, for example, he writes a column on medium that is so, so good. He's built his own following, and basically he's become his own publication. That is powerful. That is more than he probably could have accomplished if he'd gone on to a major magazine. Now, if he wanted and who to, is that? if it was valuable to him, but uh, his name mm-hmm. is Mark Suster, S-U-S-T-E-R, one of the Silicon Valley investors. So, um, and this is interesting. One of the successful IPOs in, in Utah, here in Salt Lake City, the woman who came on board as that company's global VP communications shortly after the IPO showed I mentioned to her something about publishing on LinkedIn becoming so valuable, and she said, yeah, tell me about it. I walked in to find out that our sales VPs were already doing this. Unbeknownst to anyone, they'd gone rogue because of winning in sales. So she was backpedaling to get her arms around them and give them some materials to work from to make certain their brand voice was consistent. But even Uh without that, they were doing what accomplished sales 
probably aspiring to be in a major magazine would not have gotten them that same outcome. So I think that that's something to bear in mind. Wow, and I think the average and person now that the floodgate has no opened, idea. Um, everybody's publishing, or many many people are publishing. The audience is being inundated, and uh, those who do it better are successful. Used to be, people could get a lot of outcome, even if they didn't write so well. If it was just coming from their heart and they were being authentic about it, mm-hmm. now it really does pay to get the skills. Wow. So it sounds like in one aspect the field is wide open, but it sounds like you perhaps may, may need a little bit of guidance so that you're more effective in the garnishing yes. results. That's absolutely wow. the case. Well, I understand that you launched a course called Content University, so I would imagine that that fulfills this need. Yes. And in fact, uh, the editor that I wrote for for three and a half years at Forbes, Tom Post, the person who had given me that opportunity, when he left Forbes, they moved to Jersey City a year and a half ago. And when he left Forbes, he joined us and was the primary catalyst behind this course. Uh, We did something really fun with it. The course is online, but it's also a a video book. All of the lessons are... um, in, in the form of a video book that people can take and consume, you can you can cover the whole course just sitting in a plane or in your office and get online to turn in writing samples. Most people can complete it in 10 hours or less. And at the end, they would have their first tier one worthy piece that we would help them publish if they needed help. And we do give them a certification. It's just our certification. We're, we're working towards continuing education credit to come later on. But that's something that we can provide. Either people can purchase it, it's just a one-time purchase, $1,000, or if they want to have further guidance, we can design something that lets them have a few sessions with us to, to really guide them through it personally. So any way that works, but honestly, for the people who aren't at the size that they need a full-time agency and the budget that goes with it, it's a really, really good way to get off the ground. So would you say that anybody, you know, let's take, for example, um, you have a young person who graduates from college and now they're going into the sales force and they're, you know, making their way through the business world and so forth, whether they're a salesperson for another organization or let's say they've ventured out into their own business venture. Would you encourage somebody, you know, that young and fresh beginning in their career to venture into being a thought leader where they're going to educate the public about what it is they do and how they do it and, and so on and so forth? Absolutely. And, in fact, it's one of the best things any young employee or executive could do. It will put them so far ahead. If they have the ability to present, to speak, to write, they will gain a following. They will gain career acceleration beyond their imagination and the power that if they choose to step aside and do that on their own, they can. So I am all for that. I think it should be really mandatory. So what is the difference then between them, um, let's say, blogging about it? Because uh, it seems like there, you made a distinction there, you know, uh, being featured, for example, by Forbes magazine versus somebody mm-hmm. actually writing themselves in LinkedIn. You use LinkedIn as uh, you referenced that a couple times during during this interview. 
So what would you say is the biggest, I mean, is there a big differentiator? Does it matter, the, you know, the difference whether you use LinkedIn or whether you blog on your website and then syndicate it and post it on the multiple uh, social media platforms? Well, here's what I would do. I honestly would write my pieces first on LinkedIn and then put them on my website or vice versa. But it used to be that you would put your best material on your blog now you put your best material elsewhere to drive people to your blog. So it's just awesome. fine, uh, particularly with LinkedIn, because the Google algorithms do not penalize content on LinkedIn or Medium as duplicate content. Whereas in a magazine, you know, if, if you had a Forbes column that you had written or guest posted, and then you also put that Forbes column on your blog, well, the blog is a repeat of what was on Forbes, and so you're going to ultimately get a little bit of an SEO ding for that. You'd be better off in that case to just put the link and a little bit of an introductory paragraph or just take your favorite quote out of an article, link to it, and then expand on it further in your blog where you can be more specific to things the magazine might not have allowed you to do. So, so those are some ways around it. But um, honestly, if you put a column on LinkedIn, you could say, this was my column this week in Inc. and put a link so you've not faked anybody out. Put it there. You're going to get a different cross-section of readers. And then at the end, you can put a much deeper description of your value proposition, invitation to the other things people can do with you if they'd like to and um, mm -hmm. take it to a much greater scale. So, so that's really advantageous. And people complain about the um, notifications not going to everyone anymore on LinkedIn because so much publishing is now occurring. I really don't mm -hmm. complain. It's a matter of the audience you're connected to. You can share on other social media. You can put it on your website. You can put it in your own newsletters. But um, it's the sharing and the liking that those people do Everyone they share to, it's expanded your audience too. And when they remark they're engaged, this is interesting. There could be an article I post on Forbes with 100,000 views, and the comments on it will be things like, oh, thank you, good article, thanks for that. On LinkedIn, though, they are well down the engagement train. When they ask a question, they mean it. They want a dialogue. They're ready to, to really get into this with you. And, and if you think about it, probably it's a minimum of six touches somebody would need before they decide that's something I need. I want to look into it more deeply, and they're off the bubble. You're halfway down that chain if you've got somebody commenting with you on LinkedIn. It's a real dialogue there. So it sounds like uh, for you, you're saying that LinkedIn is a very valuable tool and people should be paying attention to their LinkedIn accounts and being responsive and very engaging uh, of any interaction that you have there because if I heard you right, you said six touches with someone like that and you increase the possibility of doing business in one shape. You know, Absolutely. And you've done it in an incredible way, in a far better way than if you'd sent them six advertisements or of course. six emails that they then unsubscribe from and opt out. Yeah, because yeah, if, if they read your... LinkedIn published article, obviously they're the one who took interest in it. Now they're writing a comment to you, and they're engaging with you because it, it prompted them to do so. Um, Facebook groups are an interesting thing too. And this was another thought leader, Richie Norton, who mentioned this to me, but it's a good idea. 
he said, if I've got a special interest and there are people aligned around that interest, and for him, as an example, he said, BYU-Hawaii, I'm an alum. So he put up a group on LinkedIn, not, or not on LinkedIn, on Facebook. So it was not a page. It was just a group. He says, now I could put something on that group discussion 30 times a day and people would thank me for it because it's something they wanted to be a part of. Whereas if mm-hmm. I put it on my main feed or even on my page, people would start to get annoyed because they didn't have that specialized interest. He said, think about it like walking down the mall. Like the main social media conduit, the main Facebook is the aisle down the mall, and people start to walk mm-hmm. aside, have a private discussion, and um, the group might be like the store. You walk into Hollister together. Now you're really seriously looking at something, and all of that is a precursor to deciding, I really maybe want to engage with this company, and then they go to your website, and that's the store register. Interesting. So now they're ready to buy. So do you think that perhaps people aren't as engaging and aren't as, um, you know, long in their comments to you maybe in a larger publication like Forbes or Inc. and so forth? Perhaps because, I mean, do you think it's because they don't think that you'll have time to reply to them? Or do you think that they're just, they just tend to be more aloof, generally speaking? Um, I, I think they, I'm not sure why, but they do tend to be more aloof, that they don't want to get down to a discussion on Forbes. They more want to, oh, this is Forbes, I want to be seen. And so they articulate a question of some kind or even a complaint, but it's more there to be seen, not there to engage and get into a conversation. Right, and going and do you think record. that most of the writers are interested in, in uh, you know, a, a smart conversation about that topic? It varies. The ones who are really savvy, absolutely. And in fact, some of the best ideas I've garnered for columns came from comments. The Perfect Resignation Letter, that was the second most read article I've ever published on Forbes. And it was a commenter who said, I'm really inspired by something you said in your column. It led me to do this. It took me six drafts. But when I resigned for the company, I told them exactly what I thought, and this is the resignation letter I submitted. You're free to take it. Go ahead and publish it. I did. And then I quickly realized I'd better redact the name of the company. But even at that, it was not hard for people in that region to recognize who the company was. And that's one of two times in my professional life, apparently there were firings and resignations over something I'd published. There was an emergency board meeting, and when some of the things in that letter came to light, wow. there were some staff changes. Isn't that amazing? And it was all somebody in the comment stream who said, wow, this rings true. I'm going to do this. Well, you know, that's so interesting that you should say that because I, I have been one that have been you – know, I've always been um, fascinated with words and uh, communication and – you know that's why I'm in media, and I talk about the power of words, and and it's amazing because here you had this exchange of words with this with this person. You had an article. They wrote back to you. They shared something with you, and these are you know black and white written words. Now that was published, and you had no idea of all the energy, all the movement that was going on behind the scenes, you know, in that company which later you found out, but it just goes to show you the power of the written and the spoken word. It can move, it really can move mountains. And I think that's what's at the heart of this, this interview and this conversation with you for this show is that 
people out there who are looking to make not only make a living and a life, they can do so by being a thought leader and by using the power of the word, not just in spoken form but also in written form to educate and encourage the target market that they have. And in doing so, they're going to you know, give themselves the type of exposure, posture themselves as an authority in that given field so that they're the logical first choice when, they, when somebody decides, oh, I need to hire somebody to, in this case, in your, let's take you as an example. They're going to think of you first because you're that voice of authority in this area of exposure, public relations, content marketing, thought leadership. So that's pretty amazing. Cheryl? Uh oh, it looks like we lost Cheryl. Her call may have dropped. Okay, so uh, let's have her call back. Call back in. So. <laughs> so. Let's continue on with the power of words because this is something that I, I, I believe that all of you listening here on this show right now can relate to. One of the things that I say, I do a talk on the power of words, and one of the things that I've mentioned is that with the power of words that we have the ability to create and to destroy. In fact, uh, I, I actually say that you only have the power to create. The issue is whether you're creating something that has a positive benefit or a negative consequence. And so with that being said, we've got Cheryl back on the line here. Cheryl, I was just mentioning about the power of words. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Yeah. And basically uh, we, where we left off was with the power of words, I was saying that with the power of words, we have the ability to create either something that will give you a benefit or something that will give you a consequence. But either way, make no mistakes, something will be created with the words that you speak and with the words that you write. And it sounds like in, in this particular case, what I, I can't imagine what a catchy title, the perfect resignation letter. Sounds like a lot of people were shuffling feet and you know, there were positions that were literally reassigned as a result of this particular experience. So was there anything that stands out in your mind about that experience that was a big takeaway for you? Um, it really did underscore the power of words. Like you say, it is hugely impactful what you say. And so in my opinion, I actually do give speeches about this sometimes, that if you knew in some cases have been said that have presented, gone down over generations of time, have changed cultures, changed societies, if we really knew the full power of our words, we'd we get up in the morning, we'd stand up a little straighter, we'd take the time to prepare a little more, make our hair a little better, because, uh, and, and make it a little kinder to the people we interact with as well, because we are making such an impact. I heard over the weekend um, at some of the presentations the way just Looks like uh, looks like we lost you again, Cheryl. Apologize, ladies and gentlemen. We'll have her call right back. Um, I want to leave off. She was talking about the power of words, and we are 
Oh, here she's right back. That was fast. Okay, sorry we lost that your your signal. <laughs> no problem. You that, that, yeah, <laughs> words are so powerful. Somebody, they're so powerful. Somebody doesn't want us to hear a few of them today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you were saying that sometimes you do um, talks and presentations about the power of words, and you're talking about how yes. words sometimes will change cultures. Elaborate a little bit more on that. Well, they will change lives, but the, the example I was alluding to is um, that somebody uh, – dropped his books, and another student said, here, let me help you. Pick them up. Later on, received a message and said, I was on my way home to end my life. I didn't anyone care. That one word, hello, that one offer to help pick up the books that I dropped changed the course of my history. I'm going to give it another try. But I was also thinking um, in, in history, you know, the various ancient cultures the speeches that were given, and in one case, um, this one has a little bit to do with religious background, but you don't have to be of any religious background to get it. The king who spoke to his people, and the words were recorded, and later, generations later, historians were able to look at that address, see the diction, the tone, the organization, the style of the speech, and were able to say, yes, it was that generation, that period of people, that part of the world, so it became basically a testament to the fact that those people lived and what they stood for. Beyond just the speech that he had prepared that day to speak to his people, even beyond that, there were signs within what he had said and the words that he'd chosen that just became a witness of who these people were for an entire culture. So I take things that I say a little more seriously knowing that. Well, you know, that's amazing that you should say that because Maya Angelou, who was, you know, Oprah's um, pseudo-mother and also her mentor, she would talk a lot about the power of words. And as we know, she was this incredible poet and eloquent speaker, but she was very, very careful and cautious about the words that she used and the intention with which she spoke her words. And um, as you know, she was, she was an incredible writer. You know, the power with which you would feel the emotion with the things that she would write, um, you know, that will forever be with us. But she was, again, very, very conscious about, you know, every word, the intention behind it, um, you know, not using profanity, not saying, you know, not focusing on what she didn't want, which I know our culture, it seems like so – so I hear all the time how how much people will say, you know, you'll ask them what they want. <laughs> and out the gate, the first thing they tell you is what they don't want. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. Uh, I asked you, you know, well, what is it that you want? And I said, well, I don't want da-da-da-da. And it's like, well, that's what you're going to get, what you don't want, because you're saying I don't want that. And so <laughs> that's what you're uttering. So guess what, you know? If you don't want to go broke, if you don't want to get lost, if you don't want whatever it is that you don't want, the universe doesn't hear the don't. It just hears the, <laughs> the right. action verb. Well, and now you have exactly what you don't want. You're being by fear. <laughs> yeah. The fear is the basis. It's a fear. It's a, exactly. And and I was just having a conversation actually uh, yesterday with uh, our last guest was David Young. And I was mentioning to him how I had had the realization that, you know, if you – it was, part of it wasn't just, but also there's a lot of truth, where um, 
you know, people will say, you know, I want a new car. I want a new home. I want, and you fill in whatever the blank is. And I have a brother who very tongue-in-cheek would say, you know, how does it feel to want? You know, and he's kind of jabbing at you kind of saying, you know, you know, want, want, want. Uh, but if you really take a look at that phrase, I want a new car. Well, if you're just focusing on wanting a new car, you're going to keep on wanting and not necessarily get the car because all you do is say, I want a new car, I want a new car, instead of focusing on the fact that, you know, gee whiz, wouldn't it be wonderful, I am so happy and excited that I'm getting a new car. Because mm -hmm. otherwise you're stuck in the wanting, and that's not what you want, but that's what your the thought and that's what the words are, so that's what you get more exactly. wanting of it instead of getting a, what the thing that you actually want. So we think, and some people are probably thinking, well, she's being ridiculous. It's like a nuance. It's petty. But really, I would urge people to try it. If you don't mm -hmm. think so, try both ways and see which one manifests you a quicker result. That's all I'm going to so say. So true. Because it's so true. So tell us a little bit about you have, I know that you were just, at Secret Knock, which is a Greg Reed event. It's a phenomenal event. And um, I believe you were one of the speakers at that event. I was. It was a great experience. And you know the way his conferences run. They're a little bit off the cuff. So I went there Very not good. sure which day or time I would speak, walked that Sunday afternoon and said, Greg, when did you want me to speak? And he said, in about five minutes. And so I went up, you know, wearing the same things that I had arrived in on the plane and walked around <laughs> Balboa Park all morning. But well, it was a great experience. Yeah, well, more casual than I might have been given the opportunity otherwise. <laughs> but it was great. It was just a wonderful event. And, in fact, one of the amazing people I met was Walter O'Brien. I did not know who that was. He is the genius who created the Scorpion television series. Child Prodigy, oh. IQ of 197. He's 41 now, but started his company when he was 13. And I got to talk to him about public relations. And that article is just now live. I posted it this morning so people can read it. Everything oh, I learned okay. from him, he was amazing. And now I want to go watch that series. Oh, my goodness. I've been, you know what, that's been on my radar to check out, and I haven't checked it out yet. Uh, now I'm even well, more intrigued. Stories mm -hmm. on there are true. He's had to change them a little bit because of non-disclosure agreements. But what an accomplishment. He got these child prodigies and other geniuses with him and said, what can we do? We need more geniuses. We're getting too many problem requests that we, that we could solve with our company. And so the geniuses said, well, you could write a book, but the millennials won't read it. But if you could create a TV show more popular than CSI, the geniuses will find you. And they did. They got the producers of Star Trek and all of these great, great series to come together and get together in creating this series. It's just pick, been picked up for its third season. But he said this is something where parents and children watch the show together. The children explain the technology to their parents. The parents explain the EQ, the emotional quotient, to their children. <laughs> That's and amazing. this is a TV show. Isn't that astonishing? So it's storytelling in its finest sense, and it is, it's built his business dramatically more 
So that's what he did for his PR, which you think, wow. well, okay, how many other entrepreneurs can create a TV show that embodies that company? Well, maybe they can't, but maybe there are dramatizations. Maybe there are YouTube videos. Maybe there are things you can take away from that example that really apply. So that was pretty much the biggest, biggest discovery there that I got to take away with me and now, now share with others. How extraordinary. Well, I'm going to urge everyone to check out that article that you just posted. It's on uh, snapconnor.com? It's on Forbes. It's on so the Forbes. people just go to Forbes. Forbes. It's on the Entrepreneur's Channel. You could just look up my name, Cheryl Snap Connor, or even just Cheryl mm-hmm. Connor, and it'll come up. Well, we'll be sure to check that out, and we'll be sure to also check out the Scorpion because it sounds uh, – I had no idea this man was so in, in, intriguing and so uh, brilliant, but that sounds like, like a really uh, riveting storyline. Pretty interesting. So it is a lengthy article, but kind of fun. People may enjoy it. Fantastic. Now, Cheryl, I understand that you are giving uh, to our listeners here, you have the Definitive Guides to Thought Leadership. So if they go to your website, they'll be able to download the Definitive Guide to Thought Leadership? Yes. So our company website, snapconnor.com, snap with two Ps, and Connor is E-R. But go there. You can download that ebook you can also sign up to get our bi-weekly newsletter the snappington post and that is a little bit of a best of compilation the most interesting articles i write that would be good tutorials for others who are developing their skills in publishing and thought leadership content marketing we've got those there those are free of charge fantastic Well, Cheryl, this has been an exciting hour. Thank you again for being on the show today. I look forward to seeing you both online and face-to-face soon again. And this is the conclusion of our show. Thank you so much, and um, have a beautiful peace and love always. Thank you, Lillian. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye now.